time it has come. The big orange couch is in place. So hop on and... And welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that lets you stay up just a little bit later because there's no school tomorrow and invites you onto the big orange couch for a few hours of laughs, scares, dancing, and singing. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call this story our fourth episode about Nickelodeon programming. (laughs) I'm terrified. I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to melt into a silver computer animated puddle whenever I feel awkward. (laughs) I'm Chris, the podcast host most likely to be accompanied by the same music cue every time he steals into your bedroom uninvited. And I'm Seth, the host most likely to watch 24 hours of total TV. (laughs) Three years ago, in episode 64 of the podcast, we covered 90s Nicktoons, Doug, Rugrats, and Ren and Stimpy. We had mixed opinions. <laughs> and in episode 80 and 81, we discussed classic sitcoms as part of Nick at Night's weekly lineup, which also had us debating the merits of shows that originally aired in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Except for I Love Lucy, because everyone loves Lucy. We did. Damn right. On today's episode, we're returning to the Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. We'll be looking back at Saturday Night Nickelodeon, otherwise known as SNCC. Back in the DeLorean, a Saturday morning Cause we both be cynical and radical But was it good cause we were young? Was it good cause we were dumb? Do we think it suddenly sucked? Now we're cheated and all grown up And there was so much that we loved Do we think it'll make the cut? Will it be a embarrassing or will it be fun? A decades later will it still hold up? And this is when we were young When we were young For those either older than us, or much younger than us, or those who didn't have cable, SNCC was a two-hour programming block geared towards pre-teens and teens that ran on the Kids Television Network from August 15th, 1992 until January 29th, 2005. Though I believe we may have stopped watching (laughs) quite before then. You believe correctly. I stopped watching the first night. SNCC debuted in 1992 with the shows Clarissa Explains It All, Ren and Stimpy, Roundhouse, and Are You Afraid of the Dark? We'll be discussing those specific shows over the course of this episode, along with the shows The Secret World of Alex Mack, All That, and The Adventures of Pete and Pete. There have actually been many shows to make appearances in the SNCC lineup over the years, and now I'd like to play a game with my co-host. Tell me if you've heard of these shows. (laughs) Rugrats. Yes. Keenan and Kel. Yep. Yes. The Amanda Show. Yep. Also, tell me if you watch these shows. Rugrats, yes. The others, no. SpongeBob SquarePants. Of course. Heard of it, yes. Watch it, no. Kablam! Yes, but didn't watch it. No. Space Cases. No. Yes, did not watch it. Angry Beavers. Yes, and did watch it. I think I've only heard of it in like lewd, like people making fun of it kind of way. And no. A Hundred Deeds for Eddie McDowd. Absolutely not. Yes, but <laughs> never, ever watched it. That had, I think that came way after. Caitlin's Way. Uh-uh. You made that one up. No one knows best. Nope. The Brothers Garcia. N- no? 
No. The Journey of Alan Strange. No. I heard the title, but no. Animorphs. Yes. yes. <laughs> but only because of the, the book books. series. Oh. The books. Yeah. That I had at least three. I was obsessed with the books, watched a couple episodes of the show, and was like, this is not as good as the books. Romeo! With an exclamation point. <laughs> I only know him with Juliet. Uh, <laughs> singularly, no. The Nick Cannon Show. No. I no. was I was aware of it after, but no. Cousin Skeeter. Yes, it was a spinoff from Doug. Oh, was it? Yeah, I know Skeeter. The Mystery Files of Shelby Woo. Yes, and that was one of the ones I wrote down to be like, did you guys hear this show? <laughs> I used to watch I that. I had heard of that, but was it based on a book too? I feel maybe... I don't think so. Maybe I'm thinking of the mixed up files. Oh, this is Basilie <laughs> Frankweiler? Yeah. yeah. And, oh yeah, cartoons. No. Yes, but I think that was like a grab bag of cartoons. So, there's a lot of shows. I think I've heard of none of those besides the first few I mentioned. (laughs) I'd love to know, did you watch Snick growing up? And if not, what on earth were you doing on Saturday night as a kid? I watched the ever-loving shit out of Snick. I remember literally the announcements for Snick, saying that it was going to be a thing, and anticipated it with bated breath. I watched Snick from the moment it started. It was appointment television viewing for me every single weekend. I remember my parents and I, like, going to their friends' houses to, like, hang out with them, and I would be like, hey, do you have cable? Do you have a TV? Okay, I'll see y'all later. By. I would literally like watch Snick in the middle of social events because um, it was, you know, I didn't really have a super set bedtime and I was a night owl from a very young age. Especially on the weekends, you know, so when I knew that there wasn't school the next day and I didn't really have, like, homework that imminently needed to get done, I would have Snick to look forward to. And, you know, I mean, like, around the age that Snick came around, I was still hanging out with my, like, neighbors. I had friends in the neighborhood, you know, I would, like, hang out with cousins who were around my age or friends from school sometimes. But for a lot of reasons, largely geographic. I usually wouldn't have too many things to do like on a on a weekend night like that. So that was usually a time that was kind of wide open for me. When it really started initially was kind of slightly before the time when I would be on AOL a lot, which I've talked about in other episodes. All of the other episodes. <laughs> yeah, literally every episode, including now this one. Yeah, it was kind of a, a period of time that was kind of wide open for me. And I already loved Nickelodeon. So, I don't know, when it came out, it was kind of, like, perfectly timed to appeal to Seth. Contrary to my current preference for Nick at night, I believe I was more (laughs) of a daytime Nickelodeon viewer growing up. I don't remember watching this lineup on Saturday nights. Are you afraid of the dark? The answer was yes. <laughs> so I did not watch. I found Pete and Pete off-putting as a child. I hated... Was the red hair? It might have been the ginger <laughs> thing, yeah. He's like, I don't believe they should have television shows with demons as characters. Yeah. <laughs> I hated Ren and Stimpy. I've never heard of Roundhouse up until the minute that we started doing this <laughs> podcast. Not a single, like, shred of familiarity. And if I didn't see it, then that leads me to believe that I probably didn't really watch Snick, because it was, I think, in the first lineup. For many years. I did watch Clarissa and Alex Mack a fair amount, because they're blonde girls. (laughs) Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so we already know they were a part of the menagerie of Chris's blondes. 
Well, Alex Mack was a hot blonde to a young me. I don't think I had a thing for Clarissa, but maybe she just squeaked in because of the shit it up one Yeah. But I think those shows played at other times of day. Like, Clarissa seemed like it was always on TV when I was growing up. So I think it just, no matter, like, what time I turned on Nickelodeon, I think uh, she was there. Total TV. So I remember seeing more Hey Dude and Salute Your Shorts, which I think were maybe weekend morning shows. You are exactly correct. And, and like, lunchtime. Yeah, so those are more what I associated, and I thought those might be, you know, part of this lineup, but they were not. So, yeah, I was more likely to be nicking at other times. Uh... <laughs> It sounds dirty when you put it that way. <laughs> may or may not have snicked once or twice, but I certainly wasn't a regular snicker. If it was on Nickelodeon, I was most likely watching, with few exceptions. Always, always wanted to grow up and get myself an orange couch. I wanted the snick couch. I wanted it. I wanted it so badly. I wanted it so badly. I always like, when I get my own money, clearly that didn't happen. There's um, still time. <laughs> I don't really want one anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I really wanted it growing up. Loved Snick. Loved Nickelodeon. Loved Clarissa in particular. Loved the character in the show. I just, that was probably one of my favorite Nickelodeon shows growing up. What would I have been doing on a Saturday night? Maybe seeing a Broadway show with my parents. Maybe at a play date? But like, on a Saturday night? That's not, the thing. not. I read an interview with one of the showrunners of one of these shows, and I had never consciously connected before, like, how wide open a night that is really for most kids. That's before the time that you're a teenager, you know, and you can, like, start maybe taking your parents' car and, like, going out somewhere with your friends. Or going to the mall and seeing yeah. a movie. Like, when you're 10, you don't go to the mall alone. <laughs> right. You know? Well, yeah, and, like, that's the worst night of TV for adults or teenagers because they are out doing stuff, so it's, like, there's no competition. Kids programs everywhere, like, that would be fine because no one's watching TV except for kids. Yeah, so I would be watching SNCC. That's what I would be doing. And then after SNCC would come Saturday Night Live. I would watch Saturday Night Same. Live. So let's talk about SNCC's history. Snickstery. Before Snick, Nickelodeon became Nick at Night at 8 p.m. on Saturdays, running classic sitcoms. Please see our two previous episodes talking about <laughs> Nick at Night. They're good ones, guys. You really should check them out. The conventional wisdom from programming executives at the time is that young people are out on Saturday nights, and the only demographic watching TV at that time were adults ages 50 and up. Nickelodeon president Geraldine Laybourne believed in market niche talk, which was a programming strategy that targeted specific groups defined by age, gender, race, education, religion, or honestly any other small grouping. She believed that the audience who would most likely watch SNCC would be too young to be out on Saturday nights and too old to be in bed by eight, and that running shows for this demographic on Saturday nights could be a great opportunity to reach that audience. She was right. <laughs> by early 1993, Nickelodeon was the number one network among viewers ages 6 to 11 on Saturday nights. In 1999, SNCC had a makeover and was renamed to SNCC House. Stop me if I'm wrong, but I believe maybe we have had tuned out by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think by 99, I was watching American Beauty <laughs> instead of <laughs> Snake. Yeah, by 99, I was definitely 
off of that. Yeah. <laughs> Snick House was hosted by Nick Cannon, who was... Oh, a, yeah. It was not on that train. He was a cast member of all that at the time. Each week, a celebrity or music group made an appearance. Kid, kids could go online and vote for their favorite Snick House video pick. So this is clearly, like, way past... There was the internet? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Also, does that sound like TRL? I was going to say, exactly like TRL. Yeah, like, it's... Exactly. Basically TRL. Because I think at the time, we were at the age where we were probably watching TRL instead of Snick. Mm-hmm. And I just briefly wanted to mention, because we watched these in recordings that were taken off VHS tapes of the whole two-hour lineup of SNCC, and it came with all the commercials and all the segments. And one of the things that leapt out to me was the school takeover segment, where Nick would take over your school. Wanted it so bad. I wanted it so bad, too. It never happened to anyone I knew, but like talent like Mark Summers and, and Melissa Joan Hart... Talent. Uh, would would come to the school and they would have like a field day and do sports events and games. It looks like hell to me. <laughs> what? It, I did not, it, it looked so embarrassing. Bad. Like I was. Oh, like, it looked oh. like a dream to me. I wanted it so bad. I wanted it so much. And also, I really just loved watching all of the original commercials here for like Super Nintendo games, Super Soakers, and like all the toys, all of it. It was interesting from a like anthropological perspective (laughs) but like it was real annoying like every two minutes they're like nick took over my school it's like we get it like (laughs) nick took over your school there are at least 1000 different types of super soaker advertised (laughs) how many water guns <laughs> were like i guess everyone owned a water gun and you just needed more water guns cuz every other commercial in these in these in this 2 hour programming block was a super soaker commercial the 1990s were both a water arms race and a literal arms race and, and a cereal race cuz everything that, that wasn't too. a gun was cereal yes <laughs> Yes, you had to be, like, hyper. You had to be completely sugar-shocked and ready to shoot at a moment's notice. And every commercial was, like, explosions and destruction. It's, <laughs> I mean, I guess that's what appealed to kids, but it was just, like, every commercial was like, wow, cool! It just felt like I was watching ten commercials in a row for Ninja Turtles, and it was just like, oh, the, the whole Ninja Turtles sensibility was just the 90s like that took over everything for kids tv like everything was just like cowabunga yeah i was gonna say the 90s were completely cowabunga there was one commercial that i noticed for nick at night and i was like take me there please (laughs) this seems like a slightly calmer place (laughs) and it did remind me that like like i said i didn't really watch nick and i think it's because like i probably saw a commercial for nick at night and i was like oh that's for me. Yeah. And I started watching, like, classic sitcoms and, like, I Love Lucy probably, like, right around this time. So I think that's what happened. Finally, TV that won't yell at me. I had my Tuesdays <laughs> instead of my Saturdays. <laughs> Tuesdays with Chrissy. <laughs> so let's just dive into the shows, shall we? The first show to premiere on SNCC was Clarissa Explains It All.
It was created by Mitchell Kriegman. It starred Melissa Joan Hart, Jason Zimbler, Elizabeth Hess, Joe O'Connor, and Sean O'Neill as Sam. All those stars in one <laughs> show? <laughs> it lasted five seasons and 65 episodes. The plot of Clarissa Explains It All is that teenager Clarissa Darling, played by Melissa Joan Hart, addresses the audience directly to explain things that are happening in her life. School, boys, acne. It all. <laughs> it all. Um, she has an annoying younger brother. She likes her parents, but doesn't fully understand them. So kind of like home life for a teenager. Show creator Mitchell Kriegman, who had a background as a writer and video artist, worked on Saturday Night Live and Sesame Street. Oh, interesting. Strange combination there. That is. And in the middle. <laughs> yep. Right there is Clarissa. <laughs> He wanted to create an offbeat character living a typical teenager's life, but who didn't fit the stereotypical representation of a teenage girl on TV at that time. He said, I thought that if other people knew what was going on in a 13-year-old girl's mind, it would be cool. They are really experimenting at that age. So let's talk about Clarissa Explains It All, guys. What'd you think? Is that what you thought? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I thought. I absolutely loved this show growing up. I loved the character of Clarissa, especially. I thought it was such a unique thing that it was mostly done in a like first-person perspective and point of view. I feel like that's probably been done a million other ways and a million other times since then, but at least then it like felt super fresh. And her perspective was really unique and fresh, too. And also, I mean, I really liked her friend Sam, because I really wanted a cute guy to pull a ladder up and climb to my first floor window. <laughs> that never happened. Was it a first floor? My window was a first oh. floor oh. window. <laughs> Clarissa's was not. Hence the ladder. <laughs> I really did enjoy it. And it wasn't a show with a kind of continuous character arc. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of more traditionally sitcom-y. But yeah, at the time, I really loved it. It. And I mean, rewatching it now, I think it's really cute. I don't really find it particularly funny at all. I think a lot of the character moments and the, the plots are just super mundane, but it's fun and lighthearted. And I do think that Melissa Joan Hart's a really charismatic performer. And I think the kid who played Ferguson was pretty good too. And like, I feel like that was kind of the real main dynamic of the whole show, at least all the episodes that we watched. Give me the remote. No way. You can't make the rules. I'm older. I'm smarter. Then figure out what to do without television benefits, weenie. That does it. Turn that tape back on or... Or what? You're gonna tell mom and dad I wouldn't let you watch two hours of an R-rated movie? Mark my words, sis. You will regret this. I already regret letting Bergface live this long. Some night in, with all the fun I'm having, mom and dad might as well have stayed home. I mean, there was a trend at this time, a lot of parent characters would just kind of be roadkill <laughs> for their kids. Um, mm -hmm. And these were definitely like roadkill parents. And I definitely just didn't get the feeling that the show was alive at all other than Clarissa. I didn't really get anything new out of watching it now. It, it was never really that deep. But I also don't really think it was like intended to be that deep. <laughs> just ask me what I thought. <laughs> Chris is sharpening his knives over on that side uh, of the couch. Chris, what did you think of Clarissa? You owe me <laughs> an Allie McBeal episode. <laughs> oh, no. Because of what? Snake or because of Clarissa? 
both. <laughs> oh, that's. I don't think that's fair. I think that's fair. I don't think I've ever had a worse time preparing for this podcast than this. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm speaking, you know, a little larger than Clarissa here, although she was the worst offender. What? The worst offender? Did you watch all the other shows? The worst offender? I found every moment of watching her so grating. I want to punch Melissa Joan Hart (gasps) in the face. It just, like, irritated me so much. That really explains it all. I was really into TV as a teenager. I sometimes had, like, three different VCRs going while watching something else live. (laughs) I had VHS tapes stacked and organized, and many shows were appointment viewing. But that was, like, when I was older and had an adult sensibility. So watching these, I was trying to think, like, what was the difference? And it was, like, these shows were for kids. And... (laughs) I just, like, the threshold for watching TV as a kid is this will do. Like, (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. This this will fill the content trough before me. (laughs) This is what's in front of my face. There are not very many other options because the other channels are not for kids or whatever. There's, like, one channel for Mm -hmm. kids. Maybe cartoons are on some other channel. But in general, you don't have a lot of options. It just made me feel bad for myself as a child that, like, I was sitting there watching this because I didn't know that there was other things. Well, that's the other half of it, you know, which is that you also haven't seen enough of what's out there and what else is out and what's come before to know that there are things that are that much better. But also as a kid, maybe you don't are not interested in that because you want too. the story of what kids are going through, not what adults are going through. I don't think I did. <laughs> of, like, what you're presented with as a kid, you're like, all right, yes, this will be fine. This will do. And the other 5% is, like, MASH, and it's like, absolutely not. (laughs) Again, for the record, I loved MASH as a kid. Well, you were an exceptional child. In all ways. It makes me want to start, like, an It Gets Better program for children (laughs) about television that just tells them, like, it won't always be like this. There are shows that you will like when you're more mature that are better than this. Clarissa explains it gets better. I found this episode of the podcast a good time to remind myself about the difference between nostalgia and remembering something. (laughs) Because when we talked about these shows and and doing this topic, like, I remembered most of these things. And while I was rewatching them, I was like, I have no nostalgia for any of this. Like, it doesn't make me feel anything. I'm not thinking anything. Like, I remember the general idea of the show and what it was, but, like, you can keep it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm taking nothing from it now. So I think Clarissa was the one, and I think it was the first one I watched. And I honestly thought it was going to be a little, like, I don't know, different. Because it felt kind of fresh at the time. Like, it didn't feel quite like other sitcoms. Because I think she was being sarcastic and, like, you know, breaking the fourth wall. And I was expecting that sensibility to feel, like, ahead of its time. It wasn't. I'll I'll just stop there, but anyway. So torture, pure torture for Chris. Just briefly, though, Chris, did you watch Sabrina the Teenage Witch? I didn't really like that either. I did, because I think it was on TGIF for a while. It was, and it basically started immediately after Clarissa. Wow, so I watched it as, like, a hostage, because, like, when you were... (laughs) 
when you were watching like a TGIF, you would watch the whole thing and usually they would stick a bad show in there. Yeah. <laughs> they did that with Musty TV too. And that like, I feel like it didn't match the tone of TGIF. Like it was supernatural and that's just not, it was off brand if you asked 11 year old me. I agree. So I think I like reluctantly watched it because I was like, all right, I want to see step by step or whatever is on after it. And I'm not going to go like do something else for half an hour and come back. But it was reluctant and I, I was not really a big fan. I love that you're comparing things disfavorably to step by step. It had, I don't know, a more adult sensibility. Well, I have lots of nostalgia for Clarissa. Upon hearing the theme song, I got very happy. Yeah, same. I remember always being happy to see the theme with her writing her name backwards. and and flipping it. And flipping it. And I loved it when I was growing up. I always liked how she seemed really cool without being like a popular girl. Like she didn't seem like she wouldn't be my friend or be mean to me, but she was still really cool and very fashionable. Yeah. And she was also, in addition to the coolness, she was like not a climber. Cause like even at that time in my life, I had people that I went to school with who were cool, but also who I knew would like throw me under the bus if it made them look cooler. And she was not like that. No, she seems very aspirational. And that was what watching these again as an adult, the first thing I noticed was like, she's very likable. She's got presence, Melissa Joan Hart. I wouldn't say she's like a good actress, but she's fine for what this is, a sitcom, a very like heavy handed sitcom. But I think the representation of who she is in the show is cool. She's somebody I always wanted to be. I wanted to be a nice person, but really unique and and cool. Like that people wanted to dress like me and be my friend without having to be like a mean girl and also have a boy that would come over. That's right. Who was definitely one of my crushes, the guy who played Sam. I always wanted that big window with a seat outside the window. You know what? That like picture window she had, I really envied. Yeah. I mean, I watched like three episodes. You know, I didn't get anything really out of it besides, oh, I liked this as a kid. You know, like, so it's not like something new was brought to me rewatching these. It was still like an over the top sitcom. It was kind of interesting how most of the episodes were just monologues with a few scenes with other characters. But it's, you know, it's... There's no through line. (laughs) Like, I think that's pretty much what I think. I think we talked about this off microphone. Like, these shows are not. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and there's no, like, special episode. We just watched a bunch of random ones that we kind of picked out of a hat. (laughs) But it doesn't really matter. I think there may have been one where she kisses Sam, and that's, like, something that happens. Yeah, I think that that was definitely one. But besides that, like, it's the same episode over and over with a few different things where sometimes she's in a video game that she makes on her computer, which also makes her kind of geeky, which I like. Or she's she's always got problems with her brother, or her parents don't understand her because her mom is, like, this, like, grown-up hippie who is, like, like, only eats natural, organic food. I don't know. There was nothing there that I was like, wow, what a hidden gem. <laughs> yeah, definitely not a hidden gem. Legends of the hidden not gem Not even situation. a gem out in the open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it was it was fine for the three episodes I watched where I was like, oh, I liked this growing up. This made me a happy kid watching yeah. this show, and that's all it kind of gave to me. Same. And it's like, I, I did appreciate it for just that feeling of nostalgia of remembering having enjoyed it as a kid. To me, that was enough to take from it to, you know, be happy. I'm also glad I didn't have to watch more episodes of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for some reason that did not rub off on me. Like, I just was instantly like, uh, like the theme song just made me embarrassed. No, I love the theme song. That you were truly wrong for. That that theme song (laughs) is iconic in a way that the rest of the show really isn't. It's iconic to 
two years of human history <laughs> and no one else. Look, we're going to do a Blossom episode just because of this. <laughs> oh, don't get me started on Blossom. <laughs> Only if we do Ally McBeal. Mm, I didn't say that. This show makes Full House look like The Wire. <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> Shut up! Do they ever... <laughs> Absolutely not. ...leave they, her house? <laughs> do they ever pop Dookie down by the vacants? <laughs> I don't know. Probably it's, not. It's, I think they go in her backyard. <laughs> it's always in her house. It yeah, drove it's, me insane. But like, what? It's like every episode of the show was a bottle episode. <laughs> and like yeah. you were talking about, she isn't a mean girl, but like we never see her at school like or with other people. <laughs> it's always... This cast. I don't think wrong. they ever bring anyone else in. Is it he, just feels so <laughs> Yeah, I think you're not cheap. wrong. I think you're not wrong. The parent stories are always whatever. Like, they they're, they just go so fast to them. Like, they come up with all the effort to, like, make a big B story, but it lasts, like, ten seconds. And you're like, why did you even bother? Like, ugh. In the episode, The Silent Treatment, the dad brings in Chinese food and just puts rice on their plates, and they don't know how to use the chopsticks, and they're just eating rice off a plate, like, without any other food. Yeah, Chinese food. It's just white (laughs) rice. We're used to it. You don't go to Chinese food and just bring home white rice. And they, none of that, like, they couldn't even, they were just, like, doing this with the chopsticks, like, raising it up and down, because none of them knew how to use it. It was just like, this is the cheapest, most garbage show I've ever seen. I want to keep going just to see how angry we can make Chris. Her dad calls her a sport, like, 400 times in a minute. Yeah, I think the the lore of that is that the father forgot her name. He just forgot his daughter's name really early on in the first season. Sport and explains it never about. tried to learn it again. She has a parking meter wearing a hat in her bedroom. She's eccentric. That's what I liked about She's her. She's quirky, Chris. Come on. I, I, I would have forgiven that if not for the rest of this. But I was just like, what is this? Like, every time she walks in the room, her mom is like, oh, hi, Clarissa. It, just, it was like, this is the room. Like, there's no <laughs> difference between the room and Clarissa explains it all. Oh, hi, brother. <laughs> and I feel like it's just a show about a smug and schizophrenic teenager who's, like, talking to no one. She's not smug. She probably is schizophrenic, but she's not <laughs> smug. And just, like, every line is, like... Ferg face, Ferg breath. Like, that's the whole show. Like, I get it. Like, to appeal to kids, like, kids have rivalries with their younger brother or sister or older. So it's like, yes, that works for kids. But, like, it was just painful. And I think she would just be a bad YouTuber now. Like, Oh, she would be... Her explaining it all would be to her subscribers. Totally. Yeah, she's the original Hey Guys girl. (laughs) And she just reminded me of, like, a JoJo Siwa. Like, that's what I felt like I was watching. They look similar. That's true. Jojo Siwa totally ripped Clarissa off. Is Jojo Siwa one of your blondes? No. She is. Stop Fortunately, I, they aged up with me, and I do not now like preteen blondes. That's a lie. <laughs> Listeners, Chris keeps trying to get us to do a Jojo Siwa episode, and we're like, Chris, she was not even born during the range our show covers. Before we were young. <laughs> no, that would be considerably... Before she was born. <laughs> So, enough torture for Chris. Or I guess this whole episode is going to be torture. <laughs> this is a meme Chris episode, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's move on to Roundhouse. Whenever my life gets me down, I know I can go down. To where the music and the fun never ends. As long as the music keeps playing, you know what I'm saying. Oh, it's not like 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 it's not like
Roundhouse was created and developed by Buddy Sheffield, the former head writer of Foxes in Living Color, as well as Rita Sheffield Hester and Benny Hester. Seems like a family affair there. It starred a bunch of young people. And it <laughs> youngish. Lasted- <laughs> youngish. Yeah. <laughs> Emphasis on the ish. Young ladies and gents. <laughs> it lasted four seasons and 52 episodes. They titled the show in reference to the roundhouses used by railroad companies to turn trains around and get them back on the right track. The Whoa. stage, The stage for the show was designed to look like the interior of a roundhouse. It does look like that. I had no idea. So as far as plot, not really a plot, but each episode revolves around the any family and their problems in daily life. The half hour show is taped in front of a visible live audience. It was broken up into sketches, dance sequences, and musical performances. It's basically like theater. (laughs) I mean, I was going to say it's basically like watching a live improv show. Yeah, it was basically like watching a a live sketch or improv show. Yeah. Chris, you want to start with this one? Yeah, Chris. (laughs) Let's let's get you get you going first on this one. So I'm guessing that the way that this show came together was we have thirteen dollars for a show. <laughs> Who's got an idea? <laughs> That's generous. <laughs> so I had never in my life heard of this show, seen this show. I think it was yesterday, maybe two days ago, that I first laid eyes on this, thinking maybe seeing it will jog some kind of memory. No. No. <laughs> Never happened. Clarissa, I was mad. I was just, like, annoyed. This, I was more perplexed. I was like, is this real? Like, like someone put this on television (laughs) as a show. We made these shows up. I went through a lot of effort. This is a big prank. It's a real big prank on you. I mean, it doesn't really feel like it's for kids. Because, like, they're all early 20s-ish, it seems like. Maybe late teens. And the skits feel kind of like they're going for, like, more adult subject matter. But obviously are kid-appropriate. But, like, it feels like aliens, like approximating what sketch comedy is like. They watched SNL and were like, oh, I get it. Here it is. And it's like, no, not quite. (laughs) But these people all just feel like they auditioned for SNL and didn't get it. And the consolation prize was meth. Because it is so manic (laughs) that they're... It's just like, there's no, like, pausing between lines. It's just like a stream of consciousness sketch. Almost all shouting. Without props or costumes, really. I mean, occasionally they have something, but mostly it's, I mean, it's done on the budget of like a high school, not even a play, but like a high school sketch. It was just bizarre. I mean, I, I can't even say like, I hated it. I was just like, whoa, like this is some strange stuff. I definitely watched this, but I had not so many memories because I feel like I didn't connect with it as much because it was starring kids older than me. Like maybe not even kids, like you said, like 20 somethings. But I had the theme song memorized. I know all the lyrics. (laughs) I know every single word. Becky, one, two, three. Whenever my life gets me so I'm not gonna say I just want I just wanted to send you out onto that plank and see how long you would walk it. I could do the whole thing. Please, Becky will sing. You do not have to trick her into singing. It was the theme song that really stuck with me and the concept of the show more than the show itself. Rewatching it, it felt like they wanted the cast of my so-called life, but comedians and and professional dancers. Like it felt very my so-called life with in living color. <laughs> it felt yeah. like they hired professional dancers and then were like, by the way, guys, you're gonna be doing comedy for 90% of the show. And they were like, ooh, okay. You know what? I had a good 
time watching this. I thought it was very strange that this even existed in retrospect. It is very strange. It is like going to a more amateurish Groundlings. Yes. Where they're literally pulling wigs out of a box or making props out of construction paper or cardboard. And I found it to be very entertaining in a way, like very creative, the way that they would make certain props. It's just, I can't believe that this was on TV. It feels like theater. Low rent theater. Like even when you go, like you said, I think groundlings, but like even that feels more polished than this does. Well, it's better jokes. And yeah. <laughs> but I have to say, I kind of came away being like, that was very inventive. Clearly like very much of the time, all the jokes, like there's jokes about Cindy Crawford and things that are very specific to daily life in the 90s, commercial parodies, comments on race, I felt like it was very odd to be on Nickelodeon because no little kids are going to care about commercial parodies and comments on race as performed by a 22-year-old. So in that respect, I felt like this was very very strange. It was something that I would have felt like it would have been on Fox, not Nickelodeon. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's insane that this was on Nickelodeon. This show should have been called You Can't Do That on Television. (laughs) And then they shouldn't have. (laughs) Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's that? of them all. Queen. Gotta be the queen. Snow White is a bag. Mad Max Factor. He puts beauty back in the eye of the beholder. Next up in the swimsuit competition, Miss Hawaii. Ow, what'd you hit me for? Miss Hawaii. But she's not even on yet. She hasn't even come on. Whoa. Oh, that was a good call, honey. You better hit me a couple more times. (laughs) Stop. Men. You can't live with him, and you can't do this sketch without him. Well, Mary Jo, Bobby, Sue, Jeannie, Beth, that concludes our competition. While the judges are making their final decision, we're going to do a cheesy pageant production number. I think it was very much aimed at children, but I don't think the people who created and ran the show understood that. Because almost all the references to me were like au courant 90s references, but they're references that adults would understand because they relied on you to know current events and like know stuff in the news. Yeah. It was not humor at the level of children. Yeah, I and agree. I did totally agree with you, Becky. They had a lot of verve. Those kids had moxie. <laughs> yeah. Those kids had moxie. And they really gave it their all. But. I did not think it was funny. It wasn't just unpolished. It seemed like literally like every sketch suggestion had just been yelled at them from the audience off screen, but they just cut all those parts out. It really did seem like it was literal improv, like in that sense. But not as funny. But not at all funny. You know, they had like the the kind of stereotypical like Chinese jokes that was like a white guy playing a Chinese food delivery driver and like, but I mean like that didn't necessarily even like stand out all that much from just in my general befuddlement that this actually existed on television and that it existed at this time. Like, it feels like something that would and should have been made in the very late 80s. Like, it feels like by the time that this show was actually made, it was already a kind of passe concept. And so I know that I watched this show. I still have every note and word of the theme song memorized as well. But I, like, immediately aged out of this because I started getting into actual Saturday Night Night Live, like 
pretty much at this age. Like at home, we had VHS collections of the best like classic SNL sketches from the 60s and 70s, and then also VHS tapes of like stuff from the 80s. And they would rerun a lot of 80s, especially like Phil Hartman era, Saturday Night Live. They would air it on Comedy Central all the time. It was one of those things where at best, I think I can probably credit it for helping get me into slightly better sketch comedy than this was. But yeah, I think it was just the kind of reach of this show very much exceeded its grasp. The dancing was good. Whenever they were dancing, I was into it. Honestly, the dancing wasn't bad. But That's like, true. It's so strange because at Living Color, the Fly Girls did not act in the sketches. Right. <laughs> like, but in this, they were expected to be amazing dancers, capable comedians. But also singers. It was just strange how they were like, you're going to do everything. It's going to be like a variety show. That's what made me wonder. And I mean, I thought maybe they cast from like Broadway or something, because those are the people who would be able to dance and act and sing. Mm -hmm. Broadway? I mean, I don't know if they did, but it was just like, yeah, I was like, they definitely like cast people who could dance because no, like, I don't think regular actors couldn't learn to dance like that. So then it made me think like, oh, I guess they're not professional comedians. They were giving it their all. It was like they were turned up to 11 and Mm -hmm. like in this like approximation of being funny, but the material wasn't funny. It wasn't like they were bad at performing it. And it wasn't like jokes weren't landing. It's just that the jokes were all kind of a smile joke where you'd be like, hmm. But, like, nothing was, like, laugh-worthy. Yeah, and also, watching the episodes this time, the studio audience was fucking dead. (laughs) It was dead. And, like, that in itself became kind of depressing after a while. It's not only clear that there's a studio audience in the sense of they, like, announce it, but they, like, constantly cut back to the audience. (laughs) Are they kids, right? They are, right? They're, like, they're parents there, too, Mm. I feel like. And it seems like they didn't even go the extra mile of, like, cutting in canned laughter to, like, make up for it. That part was disorienting, where it was like, oh, you should not have had a live audience. Like, it feels like this would have been a good, like, high school project. If you're doing something funny for your class in high school, like, this was a good version of that. You know, it's not gonna, like, win any awards, but it amused your class enough. Like, you got out of your seats and you, you moved around a little and it was, like, passable for that. But that's not really the audience for Snick either. So it was just, I just don't know who this was for. It's very odd. Speaking of another comedy show on the Snick lineup, let's talk about all that. Fresh out the box. Stop. Look and watch. Ready yet? Get set. It's all that. All that was created by Mike Tallin and Brian Robbins. It starred a bunch of young people, including Keenan Thompson, Kel Mitchell, Josh Server, Amanda Bynes, Katrina Johnson, Angelique Bates, Lori Beth Dunberg, Alyssa Reyes, Nick Cannon, Gabriel Iglesias, and Jamie Lynn Spears. Not all in the same season, but across the 11 seasons that the show ran for, or 206 episodes. Well, at least they were actual, like, age-appropriate. Like, they felt... It didn't feel like you were watching awkward adults, like, (laughs) playing down to kids. 
except for a man named Dan Schneider. Oh, dear. <laughs> Dan Schneider was another one of the co-creators of the show. He often publicly took credit for having the idea of the show, even if it's not really clear mm-hmm. whether he did have the original seed of the idea. He wrote the pilot episode, and after that, he worked as producer, executive producer, and writer on the show. Dan Schneider is in tons of episodes of the show as an actor, as one of the adult performers. Hmm. And he would write little bits and skits where he was the only person in them. He created many other shows and was one of the kind of big in-house talent names at Nickelodeon for over a decade. It later came out that he was sexually abusing people and trying to groom the other child actors who he was putting on these very popular famous shows now is that alleged we will say that that's (laughs) alleged for all legal intents and purposes well i just meaning like it's not like he's sitting in a jail cell right now he is not sitting in a jail cell but it's at a point now where nickelodeon had to publicly distance itself from him sever all working ties with him because he was still in the Nickelodeon family in the 2010s. The orange couch was a sectional and they had to get rid of that <laughs> section. Yes, exactly. He was one of the only adult performers in the very first episode. He's a large guy with curly hair and very much a baby face. Yeah. And I can understand why that would be endearing to people who were younger. I don't have much to say about him. Besides, does it not surprise me at all that somebody that has those intentions would pave their way through a children's television network? Yeah. Doesn't really surprise me. I truly loved this show. And I definitely watched Roundhouse, but very quickly got tired of it. Wasn't really entertained or amused by it. But all that I really dug. I really liked the absurdity of the sketches, the complete insanity of the performers. The two standouts for me were always Katrina Johnson who plays Ross Perot alongside a bunch of other characters. She was only on like the first four seasons or so. Only. (laughs) And also Lori Beth Denberg for me was the absolute MVP of the show. I feel like she's the face of all that somehow at least from what I remembered. Like when I think of this show it's like it's hard because she was so distinctive and like I think she was probably pretty young on this show but like she always like would play kind of a mom character or like a or a teacher. Upper crust kind of woman she was still young she was um i looked it up today she's three years older than keenan thompson so he was definitely a teen so maybe she was like maybe 20 depending on the season yeah and she would play very uptight characters always and she played like mrs fingerly was an uptight teacher but she did vital information which was like a fake advice show but also kind of took the style of snl weekend update but it was closer in comedic spirit to deep thoughts with jack handy from saturday night live And Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy, once I found that, was like a literal comedic revelation for me in terms of my own personal comedy taste. And this was very much like the entry level, the internship to (laughs) Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy's absurdist, like one or two sentence per joke comedic style. And now, Lloyd Bev Denberg with vital information for your everyday life. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill just laughed as Jack lay there unconscious. (laughs) Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. Jack eat chipmunk, Jack get sick. This has been Lord of Denberg with Vital Information. 
And I feel like the rest of the actors were, like, mugging annoying little hands. I don't know if we're going to go into depth, into any depth about these sketches, but, like, there was this one sketch called Ear Boy, <laughs> and the the actor who played Ear Boy was, Josh like... Josh Server. Yeah, Josh Server. He was one of the main actors in all the sketches, and I hated him. He was one of those people who literally only had going to Eleven, but didn't even, like, know how to go to Eleven properly like everything i felt like he did ever was just mugging for the camera and not even funny accidentally and there were other sketches that i also didn't like but really for me the best parts of this were always vital information and i liked good burger but i had no idea at the time that those characters are like just stoners and like that's what all of the comedy is about so i feel like i didn't even fully get good burger but at least like that was one of the other recurring sketches that i did enjoy josh server seems like he was auditioning for roundhouse (laughs) in every sketch of this show that is perfectly put i thought Uh, it was cute i have to at least give like a a good try hard award to keenan kel too but i mean like keenan obviously was at least the person on the cast other than laurie beth denberg and katrina johnson who had like at least really good comedic timing and so like i really enjoyed like the, there's a Pierre Escargot recurring character he does who's a French dude in scuba flippers in a bathtub telling these like silly fake French jokes and I loved that for like the first one or two times I saw it but like every single other sketch on that show if there was absolutely any life to it whatsoever they beat the ever loving hell out of it beyond the point of complete comedic death like they just like anything that seemed kind of near funny they would just beat it into the ground till it was gone yeah, I got the sense that I saw every sketch in just watching, like, two episodes. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, I remember this, and this, and this. And I, I don't think I'd necessarily seen these episodes before, but it was because they had, like, the Ishbu character, which is a foreign exchange student who... Emphasis on foreign. They keep saying how foreign he is. It's very coming-to-America humor. I will at least say this about Ishbu. And I'm glad you brought him up, because I remember that character... We need to talk about Ishbu. (laughs) We need to talk about Ishbu. Shampoo for everyone! (laughs) Why are you giving us all bottles of shampoo? Well, in my foreign land... Ishbu, where are you from? Thank you for asking. Anyway, in my foreign land, it is customary to end a birthday celebration with a happy shampoo dance. Now, everyone, please wrap your heads. Now, kids, kids, kids. I realize it seems strange to lather our heads now, but, well, it's Ishbu's birthday, and I think we owe it to him to do as he asks. Well, what? Hey, Ishbu isn't doing it. Don't push me. Now, everyone prepare to dance the happy shampoo dance. Music! Because I remembered that character very much, and I was like, oh god, this is going to be so horribly racist and terrible and offensive. I was at least surprised that the basis 
of Ishbu is just, he's literally a grab bag amalgamation of every possible foreign stereotype ever to where his own like costume literally has like African elements, but also like a French bow tie. There's no one kind of stereotype. And also one of the biggest recurring jokes on it that I had forgotten about was that they, in every sketch, they ask him where he's from and he just like immediately pivots and like dances around the question and literally never answers it. So I felt like at least that like made some effort to not be offensive in the most obvious way that it would have been offensive. Yeah, I was worried as soon as that sketch came on. I was like, uh oh, here we go. Like, yeah. What's this gonna do? <laughs> I strapped myself in. And the real joke of it is more on like the mostly white people, but like the basically suburban people who are supposed to be so like, you know, adapting to Ishbu and they're going out of their way to be like adaptive to this foreign exchange student whose like culture is like gets increasingly outlandish and he just keeps asking for like weirder and weirder things. And it's clear that he's at a certain point it's clear that he's just putting them on and trying to see if they will actually do this crazy shit. Yeah, I'm not sure if they ever make that like explicit in the sketch, but yeah, it feels like he could have literally just come from like the borough next door and like put on this costume and and just like exploiting their sort of desire to appear more tolerant than they are and so they're always bending backwards to appease him even though like the things he's asking for are outrageous so it's like not not funny but it's not exactly funny either like which is how i kind of found this whole show is like it's not like the jokes are not landing it's just that they're thrown so softly that they like hit gently and bounce back it's not stuff that makes you really laugh but it's not stuff that makes you cringe and be like oh that's not funny or that didn't work so i have been watching snl my entire life since i was little like before all that premiered so this show didn't get me into this was not like a stepping stone to like snl but i watched this all the same (laughs) even though it was for kids and maybe maybe that was like made me feel good it was like oh this is for me and snl's for adults but this is for me yeah i think it was the same with me yeah did Uh, you feel a difference like at the time did you like notice that they were pitched differently probably because i felt like i could be on all that and yeah i'm sure i wanted to be oh i definitely did Um, seems like it was a low bar (laughs) (laughs) no offense to you as a (laughs) as a 10 year old Uh, i couldn't limbo (laughs) Rewatching it now, I appreciate the diversity of the cast in terms of race and size. Yeah. The fact that Lori Beth Denberg is like one of like the MVP performers. I thought she was a standout and I just loved seeing an, a bigger girl. Same. That a bigger young girl be funny and be a star on a show. I don't really like Keenan on SNL and he's never been my favorite any of his characters, but I thought he was like the MVP also in this. Like he was totally. a standout. Very standout. Um, I can totally see why SNL hired him. Like he's Absolutely. very committed. Absolutely. From a young age. Like he was also in the movie heavyweights he's been like in comedy his whole life like good for him he found you know what he likes and that's this kind of comedy like sketch comedy i really like katrina johnson as well she has a very unique look and she's tiny and she has a squeaky voice but like i felt like i was happy when she was like the main star of a sketch she has a lot of presence yeah, yeah. Like- she has so much presence yes hey, do you hear me you get in when you get in Yeah, but I've been waiting here for over an hour. Cry me a river. (laughs) Look, uh, can I just go in just for a minute? I'm uh, looking for a friend of mine. (laughs) You can do better than that, cupcake. (laughs) 
Hey, Katrina, we got another troublemaker in here. No problem, be there in a sec. Anyone who comes past this room better have good dental insurance. I didn't remember her. I remembered Lori Beth Denberg just because she was so distinct. And then, of course, Keenan and Cal, just because they became famous, like, outside of this. But, like, Katrina, like, I never would have, like, been able to tell you, like, her name or anything. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, she's my favorite. And then I looked her up now, and she is very different yeah, now. she looks very much more glam now. Yeah. We mostly watched, or at least I mostly watched early season episodes, but I went on YouTube because I wanted to see some Amanda Bynes episodes because by that point I had already tuned out of the show and didn't see Amanda Bynes on the show. And also Jamie Lynn Spears. I was like, she was on all of that? Seems like odd casting because in my mind, all that is funny, very, very multicultural <laughs> and not so pretty. Yeah. Like those girls are very pretty. No offense to the people in the first few seasons, but it's it's it was I think more about their presence as actors than they're cute. And I have to say, Amanda Bynes like impressed me, and it's clear like I could see like from the start why she got her own spinoff show, and you know for a moment like became like a pretty successful comedic star. Jamie Lynn Spears, no. <laughs> yeah. Very. very I, I could not find a sketch of her on all that. There was one I found online that starred Britney, who made a cameo, and Jamie Lynn Spears is playing, like, a little grandma type. That was the only sketch I could find online of her in all that. And I know she must have been on for at least a season. Yeah, that's crazy. And yet nothing exists that I could find on YouTube. Because I was like, I don't think she could do it. <laughs> you know, she's she's not Lori Beth Denberg, as far as comedic timing, you know? So that was interesting. It's like the show just got less interesting as it went on. Yeah, and I, I know that I had mostly dropped off from watching it by the time that Amanda Bynes came on, but I definitely saw some of her first episodes and remembered being, like, generally impressed. I noticed, I was looking at the different musical guests that were on and noticed in the first couple of seasons, almost all of them were Black artists. Yeah. And then in, like, later seasons, which I also didn't see, there were a lot more Britney, sync, like, those kind of, like, bubblegum pop kind of people coming in. So I think the tone kind of changed over that time. It went from hip-hop to pop. Yeah. So that's where, like, tastes were Very much. Going. And, like, in the early season episodes that we watched, it's like, the guests are, like, TLC, DeBrat. Like, I know Aaliyah was one of the musical guests. Yeah. Like, it was a really... I, I appreciated that. You know, I appreciated that Nickelodeon made space for, like, especially, like, live performance of that. All that. Um, <laughs> but it just made me, like, a little bit confused about, like, what this show was. Because there's a lot of sketches about, like, sagging pants and, like, cool sneakers and stuff. And, and stuff that seems, like, kind of pitched, speaks to, like, black culture. And, like, things that were also in white culture, but that had been originated more in black culture. Because, like, you know, like, I saw all that stuff in school, too. But it originated in black culture. There's, you know, several black cast members. Like, a lot of the music and humor of the show just seems like it's pitched, like, yeah, in a much more sort of in living color way and yet it's like fused with these like kind of nerdy white kids and in this lineup that's also like pretty much otherwise like very like white and pitched at suburban kids so I just thought it was a really interesting fusion not that it's like a good or, or a bad thing or like it, it doesn't work but this was like an interesting choice for like a Nickelodeon lineup in 1992 or whenever this but show see now that you verbalize it that to me fits in perfectly 
Becky, with what you were talking about, the level of intentionality behind the creation of SNCC, where it was targeting specific niche audiences, because this was also the time in the early and, you know, getting into the mid-90s, when hip-hop culture completely broke through to suburban white kids. Like, it is, like, literally the, like, targeting, and I would have no doubt that there was that level of intentionality behind the creation of this show, just in the sense of, like, very consciously casting Black actors, very consciously pitching the show in a kind of hip-hop with sketch comedy, like, fusing those things together, I would absolutely bet money that that was a completely intentional thing. Oh, for sure. And looking back on it, that's kind of fucking brilliant. Because that is, like, at least a couple years before, you know, especially, like, mainstream Hollywood absolutely, like, recognized that and started intentionally pitching things toward that. Yeah, I feel like there was actually in, like, children's culture, because I'm thinking of, like, PBS and the shows, like, Ghost Rider, that was also, like, really multicultural, or yes. maybe Carmen Sandiego, too. Absolutely. And so I feel like, yeah, there was this effort in children's TV at this time, maybe, to be more diverse that somehow went away for a while. Like, if we were looking at all that, like by itself i don't know this would have felt more like oh this is cool like this is ahead of its time but it just seems so weird like right up against clarissa which is like the whitest thing in the world i think that was on purpose so they could have a non-all-white yeah. audience i think tuning that's into true Snick. As a comedy writer, I was watching this, didn't necessarily think every sketch worked, but I appreciate how hard it is to write sketches for kids. Absolutely. Because it is so easy to rely on shock humor and blue humor. And I've written sketches for years for UCB. And anytime I try to write a sketch without like a dildo coming out or saying fuck or like just going to the absurd, which might be something R-rated or, you know, blue humor. It's hard. I think I've made like sketch packets for like kids shows I've pitched to and it is hard to write a sketch without going there. It's incredibly tough. Yeah, and especially since the demographic for SNCC is like preteens. What do they think is funny? <laughs> Ross Perot, apparently. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was one of the other f- funniest aspects of it to me. I remembered that Ross Perot was a character. I remembered Katrina Johnson not by name, but by the fact that like, oh, I remember that there was that young woman who played Ross Perot. Mm-hmm. It's crazy how much Ross Perot appears in that show <laughs> in almost every sketch. Just the ear boy. Just ear boy. <laughs> but like, it was surprising how much mileage they got out of it. And again, I was legitimately pleasantly surprised by Katrina Johnson. And like, there was another recurring sketch where she plays like kind of a bouncer who's just a total asshole. That might have been my favorite sketch of hers. But yeah, Becky, I totally agree with you. Like, it's incredibly difficult to write. I mean, it's difficult to write good sketch comedy at all, but especially writing it for that young an audience. Yeah, and when I was watching Roundhouse, I was kind of like, well, why didn't they just make this improv? And I was like, well, that's probably because you could fuck it up doing it for kids, because, like, all these actors would immediately go to, like, swearing, and, like, it would be hard. They have Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is filmed for, like, ABC, but those are, like, the tippity-top performers, like, they can handle... And they don't break dance. (laughs) Wayne Brady probably can. (laughs) 
Brady would have been on Roundhouse. He would have been great. <laughs> I'm shocked he wasn't, honestly. Yeah. But like, those are people that have been doing this for decades, you know? Can't say that I would watch more all that, but I appreciate its existence. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't hate it. I was like, mm, I feel neutral, but okay. I remembered like the Stuck on an Island sketch for some reason. I remembered really the remember- Stuck on an Island memorable. sketch too. Yeah. Where the girl just goes like forever and forever ever and, and ever. ever. And, and Lori Beth Denberg is like permanently sunburned. Yeah. Good makeup. <laughs> They, really they, they actually do costumes and props yeah. on this show, which I appreciated. Yeah, and I mean, I like you, Becky, I really do appreciate all that. I wouldn't necessarily revisit it. I don't think there's all that much to glean from it now. But I just do appreciate that it was there and that it was that diverse and that, you know, they, they did sketch comedy for people who were my age at the time. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily reach for all that, but I would reach for a bag of chips. <laughs> It was a good try. Like, I feel like you write that on the report card for it. I really did like the theme song, though. I think it might have been the best of the theme songs here. TLC wrote it. Really? Yeah, it's TLC. Yeah, it's TLC. Yeah. yeah. Well, I saw them perform it, but I, then I wasn't sure if they were just, like, lip-syncing it, because they were the musical guests also on the episode. Good song. When it would go to commercial breaks, and they would play a snippet of it, I was like, oh, no, no, don't bring this show back. Like, <laughs> just let me watch this commercial break. I was break. listening to that song. <laughs> and yes, we will not be re-revisiting this series, but Ren and Stimpy was a keystone part of the Snick lineup for, if not all of the run of Snick, then most of it. It was certainly an element part of Snick watching for me. They would usually air two 15-minute segments to kind of make a full half hour. It was an elemental part of me not watching Snick. (laughs) (laughs) We did not want to revisit Red and Stimpy, or at least me and Chris didn't. I don't know about Seth, but we talked about it at length in episode 64 when we did Nicktoons, and we didn't really need to revisit it again. (laughs) Yeah, some of us refused, in fact. (laughs) I loved Ren and Stimpy growing up, and we talked about this in the Nicktoons episode. Ren and Stimpy was created by yet another disgraced part of the Nickelodeon (laughs) family. That one being a lot more personally disappointing to me, because Ren and Stimpy was a big part of my appreciation for absurdity, and especially absurd animated humor. But again, we will quickly move on from that show. Thank you. Uh, And let's talk about the adventures of Pete and Pete. (laughs) Gladly, as long as it's not Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. Strange. You look at half a leader and I'll give you a shell of shimbe. Or have you picked your target yet? It's in this. The Adventures of Pete and Pete began on Nickelodeon in 1989 as minute-long shorts that aired as interstitials. Will McRobb and Chris Viscardi were working in the promo department at Nickelodeon, and they enjoyed a very unique situation where there was actually far less corporate oversight over what they were doing compared to (laughs) the show-making departments. So amid making promos for the cartoons and for all the shows that were on Nick at Night, they had come up with the idea for Pete and Pete and the characters, and they found a director in Catherine Diekman, who Will McRobb had gone to school with. They were able to secure money from the Nickelodeon network to make interstitials, 
And they have the complete creative free reign, creating a completely original set of characters and stories. So they made 29 one-minute-long Pete and Pete shorts that aired on Nickelodeon in 1989. Those ended up becoming really popular among Nickelodeon's regular audiences, and owing to the popularity of those shorts, five half-hour specials were made, followed by a regular half-hour series that ran for three seasons from 1993 to 1996. The Adventures of Pete and Pete later became incorporated, like a lot of these other shows, into the SNCC lineup. It ran in reruns from 1996 to 1999, and again from 2003 to 2004. McRobb and Viscardi followed a guiding rule in creating Pete and Pete. Their philosophy was always to try to tell stories that were funny, sad, strange, and beautiful all at once. The resulting series version of Pete and Pete was a surreal comedic drama series directly aimed at a children's audience, but not talking down to them. The show was filled with early 90s music by acts like Luscious Jackson, Poi Dog Pondering, Apples in Stereo, Magnetic Fields, and more. And the series itself had celebrity guest stars way too numerous to list here. In the years after its release, it's become acclaimed as one of the best-written children's series ever. Nevertheless, the show's third and final season has never once been released on DVD, and shamefully, none of the actual show itself is available for streaming on any platform. This has previously been attributed to what would be too high licensing costs for all the music. For that it's always, music? It's always the I music. Know, for that music, yeah. I didn't even know any of those bands. Luscious Jackson, I've Yeah, I've heard of them. Uh, the show was mostly filmed in Leonia, New Jersey, lending it a small-town suburban American feel. But the show itself is set in the fictional town of Wellsville. It follows the childhood adventures of teenager Pete Wrigley and his younger brother, also named Pete. They're both left-handed redheads who are wisecracking and curious kids, and the structure of the show mostly centers on Big Pete telling stories of his younger brother Little Pete's adventures and misadventures in Wellsville, as they both take on bullies, survive the challenges of childhood, and start to learn what it's like to build a life for yourself. The Pete's parents are Mom, who has a metal plate in her head, and their dad, Don, who's super competitive against everyone, including his kids, neighbors, and other local parents. Petunia and Mom's plate each get their own credits in the show's opening. As does Artie, the strongest man in the world. Who is Little Pete's invisible friend who happens to be visible to everyone else. I was about to say, he was totally visible to other people. <laughs> right. He started as his imaginary, you know, made-up best friend. Big Pete's other best friend is Ellen, who they both go to school with. And Ellen is super smart and a science whiz. Other characters, played by later famous actresses Heather Matarazzo and Michelle Trachtenberg, joined the series later, each in their first credited on-screen roles. And I think another character we should mention is the band Polaris, who penned the show's iconic theme song, Hey Sandy, and performed tons of music throughout the series' soundtrack. And they performed themselves in the episode Hard Day's Pete, which we'll talk about in a bit. In terms of awards, the show was nominated in 1993 for a Cable Ace Award for directing a comedy special and for writing a children's special or series. And that was for its very first aired episode, called What We Did on Our Summer Vacation. That was a big boost to the series and to McRobb and Viscardi's vision for the show, and it was nominated again in both 1994 and 95, and won in 95 for Best Children's Series for ages 7 and older. It was also picked by People Magazine as one of the best of the tube for 1995. What was your guys' history with the show, and what did you think watching it now? I'll go first. I think this show did something bad to me when I was a child. (laughs) What?! I had, like, vaguely negative feelings about the show, even though I kind of realized that it was probably, like, a smarter, like, more adult sensibility than, you know, Clarissa, for example. 
but I didn't specifically remember any of this show. And then the first thing I saw was that fucking ice cream man <laughs> who is so creepy. Mr. Softy? Uh-huh. Mr. Tasty. Mr. Tasty. Still, the summer isn't officially summer until Mr. Tasty comes to town. No one knows who he is or where he comes from, but when that first really hot day in June rolls around, you just know the Tasty Mobile is coming to the rescue. Hey, kiddos. Hey. It's not like he remembers your name, but once when my brother Pete was broke and dying for a blue tornado bar, he offered Mr. Tasty a huge and evil insect for trade. Hmm. He doesn't sing, does he? He's flush. I'll take it. That's just the kind of guy he was. And it's like a fever dream. I cannot (laughs) escape. I feel like every time I turned on the TV late at night, it was that specific episode. (laughs) I feel like that's the only episode of the show I ever saw. And I saw it a hundred (laughs) times. Okay, so like specifically... They aired, not only did they air that episode a million times, but also what we did on our summer vacation was like an initial attempt at a half hour, but it was like closer to 32 minutes and the creators had no idea how to make a TV show yet. So like you probably saw maybe multiple versions of that that aired at, again, many different points. Yeah, so it was like, I don't know, coming face to face with... (laughs) (laughs) With your childhood boogeyman. Uh Uh-huh. Like... All of a sudden, I'm watching Snick, not expecting to be confronted by <laughs> wow. deep, a deep well of emotions. <laughs> and as soon as I saw that face, I was like, no! Like, get get away from me. <laughs> I'm back! <laughs> so that kind of tainted my um, <laughs> feelings about this show, both then and now. This show creeps me out. That's all. <laughs> What? Why does it creep you out? How does it creep you out? There's a weird, like, the plate in mom's head and the, and the tattoo. It's it's weird. I don't, I don't get it. Like, I watched two episodes, and the second one I was able to stomach because it did not have the ice cream man in it. And I liked that one better. Like, I, I was like, okay, now I think I get more what the show is. I don't think I'd ever seen that one before. Did you watch any of the shorts? I think I watched one of them, but okay. um, I had to stop watching Snick because I was <laughs> not enjoying myself. <laughs> Even though this was definitely one of the better written shows, better conceived shows. They left the house, which was a nice twist. <laughs> there were other people in the universe, also commendable. I think this is a like inventive show. The tone of it is kind of an uncanny valley between childhood and adolescence. Like it speaks to parts of me that I think at the time were both too young and too old for it. Like it's very like silly juvenile humor in a way, which has never kind of been my thing, but it also speaks to this real melancholy in the two episodes that I watched, one being about the molesting ice cream man. He is not he is not that. I feel like he's molesting, but he is not The only thing he touches is hearts. The whole point is that he doesn't want to be near the kids. Maybe he wants to molest them, but he's stopping himself. How dare you? Don't you (laughs) do? Don't you add to his horrible, creeping mythology? 
It's so creepy. Anyway, and then there's one about a math teacher who they basically like philosophize her out of a job basically by asking her why math is important. And the link that I found between these two, and I assume it is elsewhere in the show, although I didn't watch enough to know, is like this look at adulthood as like a very like isolated kind of like sad place like the adult characters seem very sad and isolated and the kid characters kind of do also but just not quite as isolated as the adults so i don't know it i guess maybe it made me as a kid uncomfortable about becoming an adult because it looked so sad i don't know it just it seems like it tapped into like a well of sadness that i i don't think i was willing to confront at that time and maybe i'm still not (laughs) i never watched this growing up there are some blank spaces in my Nickelodeon viewing where I've never watched Salute Your Shorts and I never watched this. I think that it was more geared towards boys. It wasn't a cartoon and it didn't star a girl. So I think that I just like was like, not for me and shut it down. So never watched this growing up. I do remember oh. the characters because they had like interstitials or they were just, you know, promos for the show, but never watched a single episode. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. I It reminded me of Malcolm in the Middle, and it also reminded me of like a, a Judy Bloom novel as a show. Yes. It felt like a very unique and specific voice and style. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised. I think that when I was younger, it just like, you know, if something doesn't appeal to you, it doesn't appeal to you, you shut it down, you don't give it a chance. Goes in the mash category. Goes <laughs> in the mash category. <laughs> um, but this could have found a place on network TV, you know, like compared to everything else, it felt like there was more thought put into this show than any of the other shows. I had a difficult time narrowing down to just the episodes I sent to you. If I could encapsulate my own tastes in like tv and especially my like dramedy sensibility in one show it would be this (laughs) it like personally hurts my heart that this show is not available to watch now because i feel like it's exactly the kind of thing that's at the level of sophistication that gen z teenagers now would understand and connect with it would do well on the internet i think yeah like it Um, feels like a kind of like a web series in a way chris i'm I'm sad and personally disappointed that you didn't connect with it, that it that it hurt you in this way. <laughs> I don't know about you, um, and I don't know about your like the intensity of your summers growing up, but I picked that what we did in our summer vacation episode because growing up in New Orleans, the intensity of summer heat is such a thing that completely defines your whole worldview in that whole time of year. Uh, not just like summer summer vacation, but specifically like the summer heat. And I don't know of any show or movie that's ever conveyed that and characterized that as well as Pete and Pete does in that episode. It's like the junior do the right thing. <laughs> Very much. It is. It's little do the right thing. Little do the right, <laughs> do the right little thing. I'm from Seattle. Summers were nice. So it was just like, ooh, cool. Like okay, the of, weather's nice. I kind of figured that. And also, it's like I know that a local ice cream man isn't a thing that everyone like grew up with. But for me, that was such a part of summer and such a thing that I looked forward to. And the fact that when summer would end, the ice cream man would go away was always a thing that, like, for me, was associated with a kind of sadness. And I feel like another thing this show did so brilliantly is encapsulate the sadness of what it feels like to grow up 
but also the joy of growing up and the joy of finding the things that you love, the joy of like one of the episodes we watched was like the thrill of like finding your favorite song for the first time in your life and what that really feels like and how unexpected that is. And I mean, also for me, I wanted to send you guys some of these interstitials because there's a line from number six was called Revenge of the Pete's. These are all like one minute shorts. Little Pete's imaginary friend who's real named Artie, the strongest man in the world is played by Toby Huss who was on King of the Hill. He was on Halt and Catch Fire. He's been an actor and a voice actor in a million and one different things. But in this, like the the Pete's enlist already to take on Little Pete's bully. A lot of the nemeses in the show were just their childhood bullies, which I also connected with. But like Artie takes on their bully and completely defeats them. And as the bully runs away, Artie yells out at him. You any hat-shaped human? I bet you ride a Schwinn. Schwinn rider. I'm getting out of here. Come back, you eater of cheeses. And the line, I bet you write a Schwinn, Schwinn writer, lodged itself in my head and has stayed with me for literally 30 years, <laughs> and it will stay with me forever. That explains a lot. That's why I just, I wish I could impart more of this show to you, because it explains so much about me. I think you should get a petunia tattoo. Um, <laughs> that is truly not the worst idea. <laughs> I'm pitching it for real. One thing I appreciated at the time that I can especially point to now is the ways that all the quirkiness is grounded in the characters. Not one bit of it doesn't connect to the characters. Like, none of it is just non-sequitur for the sake of only being non-sequitur. It all goes back to the characters at one point or another. I especially think all of the actors in this are tremendous. In particular, Little Pete, who was played by Danny Tamborelli, I feel like they just capture so many of the experiences of being a young person so well. And and Chris, in particular, that age where you can't quite fully relate to the kids who are younger than you, and you also don't fully have the emotional vocabulary to relate to the people who are even slightly older than you. There was a lot about the inner world's of being a person that age that I personally just kind of had to live with by myself. And then I didn't necessarily feel like I could talk to my closest friends about. I definitely knew I couldn't talk to my parents about it. And so this show came about at like exactly the right time for me to be able to like see something that's surreal, very much absurdist in a way that I was also able to connect to emotionally and take some solace from and take some comfort from knowing that things would get better and knowing that like I kind of would understand those feelings when I got a little bit older. Yeah, I think this is like a well-written show and like just in like production value acting like is a cut above a lot of the other stuff that we watched. <laughs> I don't know why I can't get over the creepiness of the ice cream man. It's just in one episode. But it, like, it just pervades throughout the whole thing to me. I think if I watched maybe more of this show and understood it more, there's just so much absurd humor. And I think it just kind of baffled me as a kid. I'm like, why are their names both Pete? Which I don't think is ever answered in the show. They're just both named Pete. That's all it is. But who would do that to their children? (laughs) It's just weird. And, like, the plate in the mom's head seemed disturbing to me. Like, it it was just, like, maybe, like, slightly too mature. Like, it should have been on Fox maybe and then I would have discovered it like a few years later when I was old enough to appreciate this kind of humor 
but to me it was just like very off-putting at the particular time I was watching this. I can get I can understand and and honestly, I agree that the design of the ice cream man like that like helmet hat thing is super creepy. In part, I think I just liked that creepiness and it was the thing that endeared it to me more than scared me away from it but i understand what you mean and yeah it's it's one of those shows that i really would argue is absolutely a hidden gem becky i i think your comparison point to malcolm in the middle is like especially spot on but also judy bloom novels very 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 reminiscent of that remind me of like ramona and bezos like yes. about siblings one's older one's younger yes and very much like yeah like that that kind of sense of having a foot in a couple different worlds without ever really having solid footing in any one of them. And also the kind of like emotional resonance that those books, I think, really effortlessly kind of achieved. I really encourage anyone to download Pete and Pete wherever you can get it. McRobin Viscardi didn't do a ton of other things after this. They did like at least one feature film and they've each done work on their own. And I think one or both of them now are some of the head development executives at Nickelodeon, but they've both described Pete and Pete as kind of the the thing that each of them has worked on in their lives that really achieved that kind of philosophy that I talked about of, you know, being like beautiful, sad, scary, and happy, like all in one fell swoop. And yeah, I mean, like the show was a pretty special thing to me. And yeah, I encourage anyone to check it out any way you possibly can. I feel like the show is wearing a trench coat and hanging out next to a playground. And I'm just like, you're an adult show. Why are you here? Go home, you creep. Because it's just like too mature for snack. I I don't really think it is. I and I think I don't know. Maybe that's as much a result of like the episodes that I picked as anything else. Because I do think that there's a lot more give and take in the overall show between like Big Pete telling stories about himself and Little Pete. I definitely tried to pick episodes that were more Ellen-centric because I do think that was one of the shows that had a female lead and, you know, like she was in all the opening credits, but like the show is called Pete and Pete. So I can understand like just not really necessarily seeing her as a lead character. But like, I also really appreciated about the show that she was not a romantic object and she was not like a lust object or object at all and like the way he refers to her is always like Ellen is a girl and she's my friend but she's not my girlfriend and I really appreciated as someone who had girl best friends growing up that there was like a show that had a girl best friend and like her worth was not solely attached to the fact that she was a possible girlfriend or something like that next we will talk about the secret world of Alex Mack would you want to grow up here I have to I'm Alex Mack. I was just another average kid until my first day of junior high. One minute I'm walking home, the next there's a crash and I'm drenched in some weird chemical. And since then, nothing's been the same. Annie thinks I'm a science project. I can't let anyone else find out. Not even my parents. I know the chemical plant wants to find me and turn me into some experiment. But you know something? I guess I'm not so average anymore. 
The first episode of The Secret World of Alex Mack aired October 8th, 1994, premiering as part of the SNCC lineup, and it ran for four seasons until January 15th, 1998. It was created by Thomas W. Lynch and Ken Lippman. The series was filmed pretty nearby to us in California, in Valencia, Santa Clarita, and the Santa Clarita Valley. The show was accompanied by a tie-in series of 34 paperback books yeah, and a was. variety of merch. <laughs> the show concluded with a two-part finale in 1998. Sorry, I owned those books. I'm not sure I ever read them, but I owned those books. Okay. You just owned them. <laughs> you just owned them. I owned a lot of books that they I They were read. possessed by you. Starring Larissa Olenek as Alex Mack, a precocious and tomboyish girl living with her family in an industrial community surrounding a chemical plant. Along with her best friend, Ray Alvarado, played by Darius Love, Alex is just entering middle school, and the first episode takes place on their very first day at their new school. Alex gets to school late, gets an egg thrown at her head, and things go downhill from there. Meanwhile, the bumbling idiot employee leaving the chemical plant literally also goes downhill in his truck. And in a sudden crash, the secretive chemicals he was transporting end up spilling all over Alex Mack. What's the name of that secretive chemical? I don't know. What is it? I have no idea. It's I like was just fucking with you. Yeah, it's like unobtainium <laughs> 240 or something. Fuck you for fact-checking it's me in live. And a number. I don't <laughs> How <know>. dare you? <laughs> Getting drenched in that chemical suddenly gives Alex Mack telekinetic powers, the power to become a puddle of CGI liquid, and the ability to shoot electricity from her hands. So the company goes on the chase to track her down and try to use her for their evil corporate science experiments. And she and her friends have to kind of go on the run and attempt to take the company on in any way they can. Larissa Olenek won the role of Alex Mack over 300 other girls who auditioned. Creator and producer Tom Lynch says, Larissa had such a good natural instinct it was stunning. He says he didn't want a girl who looked like she worked too much in television, had the kinds of reactions you always see, the smile, the look, the acting with eyes, and all that kind of thing. Larissa was just perfect. I watched the absolute hell out of this show, much like another show called The Tomorrow People and also the sci-fi book series Animorphs. I would <laughs> seek out absolutely any show that dealt with telekinetic or psychic powers. So what about you guys? Did you watch it? And do you think Alex still max to this day? <laughs> I did watch this show, at least for, like, a season. I'm not sure. I know I didn't finish it, so it was, like, one or two seasons before I aged out of it. I definitely bought a lot of these books, and I don't recall ever reading one. But, like, I, I, did, I was a collector, and I would, like, buy series of books that, like, I would intend to read. But then I had so many that I just didn't get around to a lot of them. Was this part of the Scholastic Book Fair for you? It probably was. It very much was for me. I didn't buy the books myself, but I sure remember them. I also probably liked seeing Larissa Olenek's face on the cover of the books because she was a dish. <laughs> she was a dish best served goo. <laughs> she was a 14-year-old dish, and I was about the right age to appreciate that. Even watching it now, like you're able to put yourself back in your 14-year-old self and be no, like, ah, yes, you are an ideal gooey partner <laughs> for me. <laughs> She's a very appealing actress, though, I think. She has a certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> I don't know. She's she's very fresh, very like down to earth, but also TV pretty and and like like charming. This show and and her, I think, are both very much like a proto Buffy for me. Like girl with a magic secret that can't she can't tell her classmates or her mom, and has to like hide her secret powers. So I think I was very into that sort of story of anything like. Ooh, I have a secret. Like, I'm secretly very powerful, but I can't let anyone know. 
That's I can always totally been, see that now. That's always been one of my favorite kinds of shows. And so I think this definitely just like appealed in all the same ways Buffy did and is just like a real like junior version of that. Well, so what did you think now? Um, it's it's a kid's show. It's not something that I like feel compelled to watch more of. It wasn't painful to watch. Like nothing is up to the standards that it would be if it was an adult show. You know, like the acting isn't fantastic. Like the effects are not fantastic. But they leave the house, which is always a good thing. <laughs> Your standards. Chris's standards for <laughs> television series. This was the second. I w- first watched Clarissa and I was like, are all these shows just going to be in one room? And then they went outside in this one. So I was like, oh, this is like Game of Thrones in comparison. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't go deep emotionally in any way. It's a little bit silly. I did enjoy the fact that there was some kind of subtext here. I was like in a desert thirsting for like meeting <laughs> with these shows. Like, what can I read into? There wasn't much. But this one one is like it's a nice like puberty metaphor for like a tomboy girl who like doesn't fit in with her peers and instead spends all her time experimenting in the garage with her sister experimenting yeah i watch this every saturday night when it was on the snick lineup i was definitely an alex mack fan i remember the theme song very well i I can't replicate it because there's no (laughs) lyrics I remember seeing 10 Things I Hate About You and being like, it's Alex Mack. And so I was a big fan of this growing up. Rewatching it now, I wrote one note. It's fine. <laughs> I, I didn't really get anything out of it at all. It was very forgettable, actually. I don't know what I was expecting. I guess I was expecting a little bit more. But apparently my nostalgia was not as great as it was for, like, Clarissa or all that. Or even Roundhouse. It was just kind of like, oh, there's when she turns into goo. <laughs> this is the one I had the most nostalgia for, like, of anything. I expected more, and that's I didn't... What's, that's what's really fascinating about this. I think this is my m- most surprising Chris reactions. Yeah, I just, I uh, I guess I expected to have more of a reaction, and I watched the episodes you sent, and then I was done. And I, and I felt like I completely forgot them the moment they were over, and it left me with nothing. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I feel like I'm partway between you two. I don't know when I stopped watching this show. I know I stopped watching before it was over, but I did have a lot of nostalgia for it, for the whole conceit of it, for Alex Mack. I sought out every single show that was like this, where someone had supernatural powers of some kind. I was a late bloomer, so this was well before I had any kind of puberty experience whatsoever. But I always sought out stories like this of people who felt uncomfortable in their own body and whose body did things that they didn't understand and didn't know how to deal with as people. Like, you know, navigating those powers and things as part of their experience of being a person. Maybe my expectations were too high or something, but even at that, I did not feel the show was very well done. The show was a lot closer to me to, like, a Disney series with, like, really crappy production values and especially really plain storytelling and largely unsuccessful storytelling. Like, rewatching the pilot, like, it felt like 80% of the dialogue was 80-yard and and at least the first episode had Jessica Alba in it. I thought that was Jessica Alba. As a character yeah. named Jessica. Jessica Alba must have been born a bitch. <laughs> I think so. Because she's I always so. played a bitch. She's just very pretty. 
And that is a fault of hers. <laughs> but yeah, the show was very goofy. And like the ending of the first episode was particularly insane. Alex Mack reaches for the nightstand and uses her powers to like turn off her, her lamp on the nightstand. But she ends up nonchalantly fucking up not just the entire city's power grid, but also literally every car and presumably every battery powered electrical device within a multiple mile radius. So she is basically set off at the end of the pilot an EMP that would be a major destabilizing event akin to a weapon of mass destruction. I was guessing that this instantly would have also turned off not only every ventilator in every hospital, ER, and neonatal ward, but it also would have completely sent every pacemaker in the city completely haywire and turned them off. So I appreciated that Alex Mack ended the first episode of her self-titled show by casually murdering hundreds, if not thousands of people in one fell swoop as she went to bed. It's a weapon of Mack destruction. (laughs) How many puns are we up to with this episode? (laughs) We're getting to the number that I planned for. It was an audacious way to end the episode, but it was also not a thing that they actually thought through in any way. The tone of the show was super silly, so I at least appreciated that because it was clear that it wasn't taking itself way too seriously. But yeah, I didn't feel like the character of Alex Mack had the kind of agency and perspective on the world that someone like that would have had. Like, even at at the age that her character is at, I feel like she would have, I don't know, she would have questioned more about her existence and like what she was supposed to do with it and all of that. And it just seemed like she was like, okay, well, I guess I'll just go back to school now and be cool and ordinary. Yeah, it felt like it was a bit of a slave to having to be like a really episodic show, not even in the sense of a lot of shows, but an episodic, like you could watch any episode out of order and it would still make sense. Like, I think the show probably would have benefited from like having like arcs and things like that, but that's not what this was ever going to be. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm not seeking out any more episodes. I feel like you watch one episode, it's probably going to be the same as any other episode, which is pretty much true for, I think, most of these shows with the exception of Pete and Pete maybe. I I think I was hoping that it might be like a secret like oh this is much more interesting than I thought it was going to be and instead like it was still the one that I know I was most fond of at that age and had the most goodwill toward going into it like I wanted to like it but it didn't do more than I was expecting and it was just sort of like a all right, like yeah like this was a good paving of the road on the way to better things like like Yeah and I can definitely understand the Buffy comparison there. Absolutely. And it kind of rode me the wrong way, the way that her sister literally, like, constantly treats her as a science experiment. Two of the three episodes we watched were a two-parter, where her sister is just literally like, well, the company that owns our town came up with a new chemical. I guess I'll spill it on you now. (laughs) The sister character is a little weird. She was really manipulative. And now, submitted for the approval of Becky and Chris. Are You Afraid of the Dark was a horror anthology television series that was produced by YTV and distributed by Nickelodeon. The original series aired from 1990 to 1996 and is now in its second revival. Created by DJ McHale and Ned Kendall, Are You Afraid of the Dark premiered with the episode The Tale of the Twisted Claw as a pilot on October 31st, 1990 on Canadian television. The pilot aired on Nickelodeon in America on October 25th, 1991 as part of a Halloween special. The following year, the series premiered on Nickelodeon's SNCC on August 15th, 1992 
and aired until April 20, 1996. The show was a critical and commercial success for its five original seasons. A first revival series with new directors, writers, and cast was produced by Nickelodeon from 1999 to 2000 and also aired on SNCC. A second revival series began in 2019 and is currently preparing for its third miniseries season. I will not list all of the talent names because there were a grab bag of people across all of its seasons. Ross Hull was the only actor kept from the Midnight Society from its original pilot, although his original character name of Frank was later turned into Gary. Why bother? Just recast it. I know. Or just keep his name. Ryan Gosling was offered a starring role, but he was committed to shooting the Mickey Mouse Club, so he declined. When the show was picked up to series, the whole rest of the Midnight Society was recast and their segments reshot. Creator DJ McHale was convinced the show would never be picked up to series because they were airing it near Halloween, but that initial pilot airing near Halloween in 1991 was such a big hit in America, he was pleasantly surprised to find out he was wrong. The show became a weekly staple for children and tweens in the 90s. Kids were old enough to stay up, but not old enough to stay out, so they spent nearly every Saturday night huddled around television sets with friends or siblings, pretending not to be terrified by that week's tale. The show took place in suburban locales, but was also hailed for its diversity in characters and stories. The series was nominated for an NAACP Image Award in 1996. The framing device of this show is a group of kids that calls themselves the Midnight Society and meets once a week to exchange scary stories. Every week at a secret location in the woods, which was actually shot on a soundstage in Quebec. No, really? (laughs) One member would tell a scary story to the group. The actual story, rather than the telling of it, was displayed to the viewer. Each storyteller would begin their story by saying, in an homage to Twilight Zone's Rod Serling, submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call this story, at which point he or she would toss a handful of midnight dust which was actually dairy creamer uh from a leather pouch into the campfire to heighten the flames and produce an eerie white smoke are you afraid of the dairy (laughs) if you're lactose intolerant you should be the episode stories center around a variety of paranormal phenomenon like ghosts goblins magic dragons haunted houses etc coming in contact with average youths Usually the episodes were filmed in the woods, abandoned houses, or in public places like schools or libraries. Many of the tales were adaptations of public domain fairy tales and short stories or urban legends. Many of the horror stories on Are You Afraid of the Dark ended with a happy ending. The children weren't horribly murdered (laughs) with an axe. (laughs) Nearly every story focused on ending with a resolution and the main character's safe escape from whatever trouble had befallen them. The occasional episode would deviate from the formula, ending with the demise of the character. At the end of most episodes, one character would throw a red bucket of water onto the fire, saying, I declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed, and the group would leave the campfire, thus ending the storytelling in the episode. What did you guys think of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Did you watch it at the time? And what did you think now? No. (laughs) We know that's a lie, Chris. We know you were afraid of the dark. It's 2022, and I finally had the nerve to watch Are You Afraid of the Dark? (laughs) The nerve? (laughs) This was the first time I watched the show. I had seen the opening credits, and that was all I ever got through as a child, because, oh, I was not afraid of the dark, but I was afraid of Are You Afraid of the Dark? A common theme, I think, when I was a kid is just, like, I was afraid of being afraid, so I stayed away from things that I thought would scare me, which often did not end up scaring me, because I what I imagined them to be was much worse than they are. So I was coming into this show, honestly, like... Scared? Not scared, but, like, I guess some residual, like, childhood... Like, are they all gonna be slaughtered? Like, what's gonna happen here? Yeah. (laughs) 
Chris, that fear of fear, it's not just you, and it's not just in childhood. It's a thing that I found as a through line in my whole life, where my fear of my own fear of things is exponentially worse than any kind of justifiable fear of what things would actually be. So I guess I had built this up (laughs) as something that might actually be scary. It is not... (laughs) Scary to an adult sensibility. I don't think it would have been scary to any of my sensibilities at any age. I'm sure I could have handled this at whatever, 10. <laughs> like, I would have been fine. <laughs> you would have been totally fine. You really would have. But I just, I had an unrealistic sense of, like, what could be shown on, like, TV. Like, I didn't understand, like, this is a children's network. <laughs> like, they're not gonna show, like, throats being slit. You know, I just did not have a sense of what was in a rated R movie or an adult television show and so like we talked about the Jurassic Park episode so long ago and I was like I'd read the book and so I was expecting intestines everywhere (laughs) you never saw that Nickelodeon commercial that was like Nickelodeon we slit kids throats (laughs) I didn't know because I'd never dared to watch it so I never knew that the reality was so tame you're scared of the unknown yeah I was and so this was a little bit of a disappointment for me (laughs) And because, you know, people who did watch the show are always like, ooh, that scared me so much when I was a kid. I was expecting it to be scary. It's not very scary. What about you, Becky? (laughs) I watched this as part of Snick. Mm -hmm. I feel like I would, like, turn off the lights to make it extra spooky. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, I I don't think I have any memories of particular episodes, but I just remember I definitely watched this. I thought, upon reflection as an adult, this was the worst of this movie bunch that I hated the most that I truly thought was lame and cheap. Wow. Um, it reminded me of the Goosebumps episodes we watched. It was pretty much Goosebumps. It was but Goosebumps. tamer. It's tamer than Goosebumps. Yeah, it's. I think it's even tamer than Goosebumps. I would totally agree with like, that. Like, it just made me mad. Like, we talked about in the E.T. episode how the beginning of E.T. is kind of, like, spooky and, like, unsettling. Kids can take a little bit of actual scares, you know? Yeah. Or, or, or a truly, like, unsettling atmosphere. And yet, this just felt so cheaply done. And so, like, we're being spooky now. But, yeah. like, but, like, not earning very- anything arch in like acting spooky yeah but nothing actually scary is happening right but but you're telling me it's scary but i'm not actually scared the opening titles of et like not before like the movie starts like just the font is scarier than this entire show Yeah, purple text on black screen is much scarier than this yeah and so like it just made me mad like come on put some fucking effort into it like i get you're on a kids network but jesus (laughs) like some effort It, it just was so so lame that I truly hated it. How are you boys at Riddles? Doc, we're tired and we just want to go home. Indeed, indeed. But first, a riddle. Try this one. How far can you walk into the woods? We don't want to do riddles. If you must. Riddles exercise your brain. And where would you be with no brain? I don't know. Ask the wild boar. Halfway. Say what? He asked how far he can walk into the woods. Halfway. After that, you'll be walking out. Good! Very good! (laughs) You may do. I'm hard-pressed to disagree, and I say that as someone who was obsessed with the show as a child, but I was always more obsessed with the concept of it, and Chris, exactly as you were talking about, 
what I was entranced by was the idea of like the fear of the fear of how scary something could be. Like I said, that's been a through line in my whole life where I end up discovering that things that I've just felt paralyzed by the fear of, in retrospect, end up being nothing. And I end up, you know, with the kind of like silly realization that, oh, I absolutely could have taken that if I had just faced it head on and not given into my fear of that fear. But my friends and I in elementary school would basically like cosplay Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like we pretended to have the Midnight Society, like at recess, and we would get together and tell scary stories. We wouldn't tell the same scary stories that were in episodes, but we would just kind of take the basic premise of the show as like an excuse to get together and talk tell scary stories to each other. I think kids did that at my school, too, when I was, like, like I, I didn't watch the show, so I would either, like, avoid them or was not invited into the Midnight Society. And for me, it was very much tied in with the same things I loved about scary stories to tell in the dark. But, like, that at least had macabre elements and scary things in the stories and also especially in those illustrations in the books. Mm-hmm. Actual death. Yeah, actual yeah. death. Like people being <laughs> trapped or being followed and stalked exactly and with this it was like the mildest of shenanigans and also there was like one episode that just like clearly ripped off they live <laughs> that had like mm. magic glasses yeah except for it was i see black people that part where it's like he puts on the magic glasses and in most of it <laughs> it's so like bad. scary white women in dark robes but then at another point they're at a basketball court and everyone playing basketball is wearing black clothing well it wasn't just black clothing it was like a you know like the green man suit but it was all black yes but it was just like oh i see black people <laughs> yes like so terrible. i couldn't stomach any more snick at this point so i just <laughs> skipped ahead and that was the first thing i saw was like she put on the glasses and it was like a bunch of people in black shrouds playing basketball. I was like, uh, what is the message of this so show? So cheaply made. Yeah, it's it, and it was both so cheaply made and also incoherent. And there's a way in which I at least give it the honor to say that most kids suck at storytelling. So it also would be incoherent for a little kid to tell you a ghost story. But still, even for that, it was especially incoherent. I have many memories of like images in this show. Like I very much remember the face of Zebo the clown. Like the scary clown who's in many, he was actually a recurring character in many episodes. But I'm going to put the quote when Zebo the clown calls this kid on the phone and is like, Give it back! Give it back! One day's the best I'm going to do. Give it back! Give it back! (laughs) No way, Weege. You're not scaring me. Is that before or after he writes Z in pudding as the big scary moment? Z God. in pudding in a in a clown oh. shoe print of pudding. The clown spilled pudding on the floor and then stepped in it? I don't know. There's not even much of an attempt at storytelling in the scary stories here. How is this show the same demographic as, like, Roundhouse? It's not. <laughs> These scares would be appropriate for, like, a three-year-old. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be like, honey, like it's- my three-year-old at home, and be like, honey, there's a scary Z on the floor. Yeah, and yeah, your child basically doesn't have object permanence down, <laughs> and so that's the only way I know that I can absolutely scare her. And I feel like this is perfectly aimed at her demographic, but no older than that. Like truly, I watched 
the Twilight Zone as a child. I did too. Especially like New Year's Eve marathons. Yeah. I could handle that. And those were had some scary situations, more like psychological, but they were scary to think about. Could not this show have done something <laughs> along those lines? Like, why does it have to suck if it's just for kids? Which is something I think is a running theme in these shows <laughs> is that they don't expect the adults to watch, so they don't make them good. Like, they yeah. don't try harder. It reminded me of, like, Goosebumps because, like, you're reading the Goosebumps and, like, the first ten chapters are like, and then something jumped out at me. Oh, it was just a cat. But it doesn't go on to the part that's actually <laughs> scary. It Precisely. just ends there. And I, I couldn't even get a handle on... I mean, even within the world of the story, like the first one with the clown, like it sort of implied that maybe it was just his friends playing a joke on him. And then the second one, it maybe was genuinely supernatural. I couldn't even like tell if this was like a real, like the stories were actually supernatural or Mm -hmm, not. Like so much of it is just like, gotcha, like kids playing pranks on each other. It's just uh, Yeah, I think I I think this continues the when you were young position of being officially against pranks. <laughs> Cuz yeah, that sentiment is pretty much behind all of the barest attempts at scares that actually happen in it. This is probably the most disappointing one because it was the one that I had really the most nostalgia for, as, like I said, especially cuz I, I like literally like played this scenario out with friends of mine. But of course, looking back on it now, it's like no, like the value of that was you know, spending time with my friends and telling stories with my friends. And yeah, the show also doesn't really do that because it never shows them actually telling the stories. (laughs) It's a failure in every way. I'm definitely not going to check out the revival series. It's sad that this is the one that like has kept going and is still going even now. (laughs) Just to like go back to an earlier point I made, like I have a three-year-old and I still see this today that shows that are made just for kids kind of suck. There are few exceptions. It's like they just, they're just like, whatever, just put something on TV and the kids will watch it. Doesn't have, don't, don't put any effort. And it just, it really is frustrating, especially when it's for this age that I think these cynic shows were for, for like 10 to 14. 8 to 12. (laughs) 8 to 12? Like 8 to 13, 14. And I feel like that age group deserves better. They have like the Disney cartoons when they're very little and stuff about learning their ABCs and things like that and moral lessons. Then there's a bunch of complete crap and then there's stuff for older teenagers that younger teenagers watch and then like adult stuff this might be why you want to donate to my new nonprofit. it gets better <laughs> the tv version yeah i'm just oh, no. i feel bad for this age they have crap they have crap to me it's why pete and pete stood out so much and still stands out so much the way in which they aimed to talk up to their audience and to really like have these characters be invested with like real human drama and deal with the big thoughts and big feelings that come with being that age that isn't part of teenagerdom, you know, which I think occupies such a like big vaunted space in our culture. And also is older than children where there's the its own kind of universe of assumptions and presumptions about the way that entertainment is made for them. I do feel that Pete and Pete was really unique in that its creators, you know, assumed the intelligence of their audience and tried to play to that. And almost none of these other shows even had that much in mind. 
much less whether or not they were successful at doing it. I mean, not that I watch children's programming now, but from everything I've ever seen, uh, it doesn't seem like much has changed. No, from what I've seen of what my nieces watch, no. Um, I tried to think about this in connection to TGIF, which I think makes a lot of sense because it's another night lineup geared at partially a young audience. Although with TGIF, it is not geared only at kids like the the goal is basically i think to get families to Mm. watch because i was thinking of snick and i was like i don't remember like watching this with my sister or i know like my parents i don't think they would have tolerated it like they could tolerate family matters it might be embarrassing and bad but it's like there's enough humor there pitched at an adult level that they can at least like stomach 22 minutes of it. Oh, yeah. I remember my parents being like, no, you, you enjoy that Nickelodeon. You go watch that snick. Well, because okay. the storylines in TJF were, if not all adult-oriented, but family-friendly, either like half kids, half adults. Yeah. But on snick, it was all mostly very like young kids mm-hmm. yeah and like tgif had like a cultural footprint it's something that like you mention to people of different ages and they remember it no one who isn't our age knows any of these shows you know outside of the window that like you would have been a kid watching them they weren't on the cover of entertainment weekly <laughs> they're like a babysitter show for kids like when your kids are old enough that you can put them in a room for two hours and not worry about what they're doing that's just what they are and yeah it it is kind of sad that like they're just so zombie making i guess that it's just like here watch this don't think we're gonna do the bare minimum to entertain you and keep you sitting here for two hours but we're not going to provoke any like thought or emotion there's not any danger of actually like feeling anything except for creeped out at pete and pete No, that's that's the one that, like, dares to twinge an emotion out of you. But the rest of these, it's like, yeah, like, the, the emotional beats are all very surface level. Like, you're never like, oh, my God, is Clarissa going to make up with Fer- Ferguson? Like, what's going to happen? Like, mm-hmm. you know yeah. exactly what's going to happen. It's the same every time. So I don't think we've ever done anything that exists in such a vacuum of, like, our own age and no one else <laughs> would know it. And it made no, like, even the Nicktoons were, like, a adapted into movies sometimes like i think maybe my mom would have heard of rugrats or doug or something even if she didn't watch it like but would she know roundhouse Roundhouse. (laughs) pete and pete i i doubt it i doubt it that's all the orange couch we have time for on this episode of when we were young on our next episode we're going to be celebrating two of life's most precious concepts the miracle of childbirth and arnold schwarzenegger So what you're saying is we're going to be celebrating Schwarzenegger? Yes, we're doing Schwarzeneggers, which means uh, <laughs> the next one to two episodes. Let's see how long we talk about them. We're going to be discussing Arnold Schwarzenegger's family-friendly movies from the 80s and early 90s. That would be Twins, Kindergarten Cop, and Junior. It's going to be something, guys. <laughs> it's going to be a whole lot of something. <laughs> 
but it's not going to be a tumor. <laughs> it's not a tumor. <laughs> the When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us and rate and review us five stars or more on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Show on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And you can contribute to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash when we were young so we can provide you more episodes of the show for free. I have been Seth. I'm Becky. And I need all of the 90s super soakers I saw during the commercials while watching Snick. Mom, can I, can I, can I? <laughs> the super soaker XB85 triple shot. The one and only super soaker device. One, two, three, feet the water at once. Rotating nozzles let you hit the target to the left, to the right, to the middle. The 90s super soaker XB85 triple shot. Well, it's better.